Word on Fire is brought to you by Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Chicago area since 1837. This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, the readings today are all about the relentlessness of the divine mercy and forgiveness. They speak in exuberant and excessive ways about this quality of God. And as you know, we can find parallel texts all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. It's not the case, by the way, that the Old Testament is the place where all the texts on God's demand are found and the New is where you find God's mercy. No, no. All through the Bible, we can find loads and loads of texts about how extravagant God is in mercy, love, and forgiveness. But you know, we also know you can find an equal number of texts, again, both Old Testament and New, that speak of the equally exuberant, excessive demand of God. How often in the Bible God upbraids his people, how often he calls them back dramatically to follow the law. All of it summed up, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says in those still startling words, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the moral demand of God. It's that high. It's that impressive. Be perfect. Mother Teresa said, no one is a saint by halves. You're a saint all the way. And that corresponds to this biblical demand. Now, has it been hard over the centuries to keep these two claims together? Yeah, I think people do have a hard time. How do you balance God's infinite mercy, his exuberant forgiveness, with his infinite demand? Well, it's so difficult that often, sadly, we make a choice. We turn it into a sort of zero-sum game. In other words, the more you emphasize God's mercy, the less you emphasize God's demand. Or the more you emphasize God's moral demand, the less you emphasize his mercy. I've told you before that I came of age during the years just after the Vatican Council. And in reaction probably to an overstress on God's moral demand, in those years after the Council, we put a very strong, even unilateral stress on God's mercy and forgiveness. The problem was that we did it in this competitive way, as though to emphasize that, you have to just negate the other side. You know, the problem is, when you divide the thing this way, you get a skewed understanding of God. If all you talk about is God's mercy, love, forgiveness, compassion, you end up with what Paul Tillich called the sugar daddy God. The God who's there just to indulge you at every move, who never makes any moral demand on you, never calls you to spiritual perfection. 
It's not the biblical God. On the other hand, if all you talk about is God's excessive moral demand, you can end up with God the tyrant, who just broods over us in this overwhelming way. Well, look, a plague on both your houses. Neither one of those is a healthy biblical perspective. Here's what the Bible says. God is infinite. That means infinite in everything. That means whatever God is, whatever God does, he is and does infinitely. We can't say he's somewhat merciful and somewhat demanding. Well, no, then he wouldn't be the infinite God. We can't say he's a little bit merciful and a lot demanding, a little bit demanding, a lot merciful. None of that makes sense in regard to God. Rather, the God of the Bible, who is one and infinite, is in all things and in all ways infinite. Both at the same time, with equal exuberance and equal vehemence, yes, he calls us to a high virtue with a relentless demand. And he showers on us with an equal relentlessness, his mercy and forgiveness. So Christians, that's my first point. Keep those two things together. Don't drive a wedge between them. Okay, with that in mind now, let's look at some of these images and stories from the gospel, which are really terrific. Listen how it begins. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, at which the Pharisees and scribes murmured, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's a revolution there, Christians. There's a revolution in that. Much of the novelty of Jesus, much of the shock and the surprise of Jesus is seen here. He lived in a very stratified society. And stratified not just economically, politically, and socially, but religiously. Part of what it meant to be a righteous person in Jesus' time was to be set apart from the unrighteous. If you followed the law, that meant in part that you kept your life distant from those who didn't follow the law. You didn't mix with them. Nothing to do with them. Remember that scene in Franco Zeffirelli's movie, Jesus of Nazareth? I think it's still a very good movie. It shows Jesus striding into the home of Matthew the tax collector while his disciples huddle fearfully at the door. They wouldn't go in. They'd be rendered unclean. They wouldn't go in the house of a, of a tax collector or a public sinner. Jesus strides right in. That's what's being described here. How shocking that was. How undone that was in the society of Jesus' time. What's the point? This is what incarnation means. Our God breaks these social differences, divisions, stratifications, because he has come with his relentless mercy to seek out precisely us sinners. Remember he said, I've come not for the righteous, I've come for the sinner. It's not the well who need a doctor, it's the sick who need a doctor. And I'm going to go and find them, seek them out, overcome all these artificial barriers and divisions. God who runs after the sinner. You know, 
probably a lot of us, when we think about God, maybe under that rubric of his great demand, we think of God as a, as a distant figure, very hard to please. Maybe, maybe if we come crawling to him, begging forgiveness, he'll might, he might indulge us. That's not the biblical image of God. Jesus here is the icon, as Paul says, of the invisible God. He's showing us what God is like. He's not someone who stands in an infinite reserve waiting for us to come crawling to him. Instead, almighty God, all-powerful God, comes to us, into our space, seeks us out. Look, wherever we go, he's willing to follow. He never relents, never gives up. The more we run, the more he runs after. The more we hide, the more he looks. The more we resist, the more he persists. God likes sinners. As I've said before, he likes sinners. He goes where they are. All that's contained here in this shocked line of the scribes and Pharisees, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Thank God. That's who we are, brothers and sisters. That's who we are. Every one of us is a sinner. Thank God that Jesus Christ is willing to sit down with us. And that beautiful convivial image, too, eating and drinking with, that doesn't mean he's sitting there like an icon, you know? When you eat and drink with someone, it means you're, you're convivial, you're sharing life, you're smiling, you're joking. Hey, could you pass this? That's the way God relates to us sinners in the exuberance of his mercy. Then, Jesus gives us two wonderful and really funny parables. Listen, who among you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wasteland and follow the lost one till he finds it? Now, Jesus is talking to a group of, of farmers and peasants and shepherds. They, they know this world. Which one of you, he has a hundred sheep. He loses one. Wouldn't run after that one sheep. Well, you know what the proper response to that question is? <laughs> well, no one. I mean, they'd be scratching their heads. What do you mean? For a shepherd in Jesus' time, a, a flock of sheep was not just a little hobby, a sidelight. That's his life, you know? The flock of sheep meant his, his food. It meant his clothing. It meant his livelihood. It meant his, his well-being. So, you're up on the hillside, and you notice that one sheep, one, has wandered off. You'd risk the 99? You'd leave them exposed to every type of danger where they could wander off, they could be killed, they could be stolen to find one sheep? Forget it. No one would do that. No self-respecting shepherd. Yet, that's what God is like in regard to one of us sinners who wanders away. Imprudent, over-the-top, silly, irrational, uh-huh, that's the way God is. Risking everything. Risking everything to find even one sinner wandering away. That's how powerful that image is. Now listen to the second one. I think even more comical. What woman if she has ten silver pieces and loses one, does not light a lamp 
sweep the house in a diligent search until she's retrieved what she lost. Okay, let me get this right now. She's got 10 silver pieces. She loses one. And she goes on a search, turning her whole house upside down to find that one coin. I mean, isn't that a little bit extravagant? A little bit over the top? But then Jesus turns up the heat. Listen. And when she finds it, she calls in her friends and neighbors to say, celebrate with me, for I found my lost coin. Now, can you imagine you're one of those people who's received an invitation to come over to someone's house to celebrate? Why? Because she found a coin. Look, it would cost her more money to throw the party than it would than the coin was worth. I mean, this seems a little bit over the top, exuberant, extravagant, too much, irrational, imprudent. Uh-huh, that's the point. That's how God seeks us. That's how God runs after us like the hound of heaven, imprudently, irrationally, with exuberant love. That's why it's so wonderful. I'll close with this. The second reading is from Paul to Timothy. And Paul tells his own story. Look, I was the worst of sinners. I persecuted the church. I presided at the death of Stephen. I was was an enemy of God. Paul didn't convert and then God embraced him. Paul didn't change his life and then God said, okay, but rather God, listen, came right into Paul's life and he turned him upside down. He sought him out and remade him from within. That's the way it works. We don't come crawling to God. Rather, I know it sounds strange, God comes crawling to us sinners. And that is wonderfully, impossibly good news. God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. Most interment arrangements at the 42 Archdiocese of Chicago cemeteries are made through a pre-need plan. Your thoughtful planning today is economically prudent and contributes to peace of mind for you and your loved ones. Catholic Cemeteries counselors are available at your convenience. For more information, call 708-449-6100. Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Catholic community since 1837.